4: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
3: On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today has written an extraordinary new book, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream. He details his conversations with American icons and historians on the ever-evolving American experiment in democracy, culture, innovation, and ideas. The American Experiment explores the diverse makeup of our country's DNA, through interviews with Pulitzer Prize-winning historians, diplomats, music legends, and sports giants. Through these enlightening conversations, the American experiment brings the American spirit of life, revealing the setbacks, suffering, resilience, ingenuity, and social movements that continue to shape our vision of what America is and what it can be. In an era of extraordinary global challenges, the American experiment is a powerful and inspirational reminder of this country's promise. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, David Rubinstein. He is the New York Times bestselling author of How to Lead and the American Story. He is co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, a global private equity firm. He's also the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and the Council on Foreign Relations. He is an original signer of the Giving Pledge and the host of The David Rubenstein Show on Bloomberg TV and PBS. I'm really pleased, David, that you take the time to chat about your new book. But before that, because I think this shapes a lot of what you do, would you share with our listeners your personal story of growing up in Baltimore as an only child? I understand your dad was a U.S. Postal Service worker, and your mom was a homemaker, you came from humble beginnings, as many Americans do. What occurred early in your life that you think really shaped you and shaped who you became?
5: Well, of course, I was an only child. My father worked in the post office. So if you're an only child, your parents do you put a lot of attention in you. And I was somebody they gave unconditional love to, so that was very helpful. But I believed in the American dream. I read a lot about America And I loved reading and I read about the American dream. And I thought, I actually believed, naively or not, that if you worked hard, you could rise up in this society. And so I thought if I got a good education, I could actually make something of myself. My parents had not graduated from high school. And so I wanted to do more than they had done and they wanted to encourage me. So I got lucky in my life and got to the point where I could give away the bulk of my money, which I'm now doing as a signer of the giving pledge. It was a lot of luck and fortuitous things happened along the way.
3: Now, you ended up at the University of Chicago Law School, which is a remarkable institution in its own right. Did you find that a challenging thing to go from Baltimore to Chicago?
5: Well, I did my undergraduate work at Duke, and I thought that was okay, and I later became the chairman of the board of Duke. At the time I was at Duke, nobody probably knew I was in the class. I was so undistinguished. So when I became the chairman of the board, probably people didn't believe I was actually in the class that I said I was in. I just wasn't that well known. I went to law school because I got a full scholarship. And I try to repay them. By now, I give 60 scholarships a year to University of Chicago Law School students. And this year, there are nine students from the University of Chicago Law School who are Supreme Court clerks, the most they've ever had. And so I'm very proud of what the law school has done. And I'm now very involved in the University of Chicago on the Board of Trustees. But at the time you go to law school, you got a PhD. You never know if you're going to be competitive or not. And so I got lucky. I did okay, But there were people a lot smarter than me. And you probably know some of the people in my class. Frank Easterbrook was in my class. Pretty smart guy. Doug Ginsburg was in my class. Another pretty smart guy. So we had some pretty impressive people in that class. I wasn't one of them.
3: Well, but when you graduated, you must have been doing all right because you end up at a major law firm in New York.
5: I did okay, but I wasn't a Supreme Court clerk. The people that were the Supreme Court clerks just kind of mentioned some of them. But anyway, I did okay. But look, I didn't really love the practice of law, and I wasn't that good at it, to be honest. I was very interested in politics and in government, so I ultimately came to Washington to get involved in in government and politics. It didn't work out that well for the country because I managed to get inflation to 15% when I was working in the Carter White House, so nobody's invited me back to government since then.
3: As a Georgian, I had known Jimmy when he was governor, and then I became a member of Congress halfway through his term. I mean, he was very idea oriented, very innovative, very aggressive, much more than people would have thought just watching him smile and shake hands. But you managed to end up being the deputy domestic policy assistant at a time when they were wrestling with a lot of really big problems. I mean, first of all, just for everybody who's fascinated with how the city works, how did you end up with that kind of a White House job at that stage in your life?
5: Well, White House staffs are usually filled with people that are not qualified for the jobs, and I was in that category probably, but I worked in the campaign. I went down and worked in the campaign just for three months in the general election. My boss was Stuart Eisenstadt, and he became the domestic advisor, and I became his deputy. So I had never met Jimmy Carter until two weeks into the White House, because in the campaign, he was out campaigning. I was in Atlanta. I never met him. And then I never met him in the transition. I'm two weeks in the White House before I actually met him. So I didn't really know Jimmy Carter, and then I just worked hard on long hours, and I got to know the, the policy positions. But, you know, in hindsight, two very good books about Jimmy Carter have come out recently, or three, really. Stuart Eisenstadt wrote one, and then Kai Bird wrote another one, and then another one's written as well with Carter's cooperation. And these books point out how many things Carter tried to get done. He didn't get them all done, but... Even what he did get done was a a lot compared to what presidents get today. Today, if a president gets one major thing through in four years, we think they've done a great job. Carter did a lot of things, some of which you did not like, and some of which a lot of Americans didn't like. He didn't get reelected. But he actually tried, and he got a lot of things done, relatively speaking, compared to what we have today. And as you know, Carter's a very smart person.
3: Yeah, he was. I mean, I watched him emerge from being a state senator to winning the governorship where he was the underdog and decisively beat the former governor, Carl Sanders, who everybody thought was a big deal. And the famous moment when all the guys came through in 1972 and came to the governor's mansion, spent the night, and after he'd met all of them, he turned and said, you know, if they can run for president, why can't I run for president? And the famous Atlanta Constitution headline, Jimmy Carter is running for what? And he was a great politician. You can argue about the presidency, and you and I would disagree to some extent. But you watch him take on Teddy Kennedy in 1980 when people thought that Carter was a flat on his back. And by the time he got done, Kennedy was dramatically smaller than he had started. And Carter was the Democratic nominee.
5: He was. I would say that had Kennedy not run, I think Carter had a better chance of winning the election. Most presidents that have primary runs against them that are serious don't get reelected. Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan ran against him in 76, and George Herbert Walker Bush didn't get reelected. He had a primary challenge as well. You know quite well, Carter had some real strengths. He was not able to prioritize as well as he should have, and he wanted to do so many things, and he couldn't get everything done. And even though he had a large Democratic Congress, he couldn't get everything done. But like in your case, Carter looked around and said, Hey, these guys aren't any smarter than me. I could be president of the United States. Well, you looked around and you said, these guys aren't smarter than me. I could be Speaker of the House.
3: Those things sometimes happen. But, you know, I watched Jimmy at the time, and I always thought that had he done slightly less, that he would have dramatically increased the likelihood of getting reelected.
5: I agree with you. He didn't prioritize. We would say to him, what are you willing to do? And he would give us like 20 things, and he didn't prioritize. He wanted to get everything done. He was like a kid in a candy store. He just wanted everything. And had he prioritized, it would have been better, I think, for sure, because when you don't get everything, it looks like a failure. If you don't get every bill that you want done, it's a failure, even though he got a lot of bills done. So in hindsight, I would say history will record him as having been a great ex-president and not a great president. And that's the way history is probably going to be written. You're a former history professor yourself, and I suspect you would probably agree with that assessment.
3: Yeah, although I think at times, I mean, Carter got trapped into a world where the inflation rate and the whole problem of bringing the U.S. economy under control and the pressure that Volcker, the chairman of the Fed, was under from leaders around the world to get the inflation under control, no matter what it cost in unemployment. Those things were, in many ways, beyond his immediate ability to control. And you look at something like the Camp David Accords, which was the first great breakthrough with Begin and Sadat in getting Israel to be able to live with a neighbor, that that was a pretty darn historic achievement on his part. It was a
5: singular feat of negotiation. We haven't seen the likes of that really for quite some time. But it didn't help him politically. The Jewish community really, really did not like Jimmy Carter. And as you probably know, in Georgia, when his grandson ran for governor, he was hurt by the fact that he was Jimmy Carter's grandson because the Jewish community really still does not like Jimmy Carter.
3: It's one of those things, as you pointed out. You know, every politician has strengths and weaknesses, and sometimes. The weaknesses stay around longer than the strengths. But now you leave there, you end up in 1987 co founding the Carlisle Group, which has turned out to be enormously successful, managing something like $260 billion with 29 offices around the world. I mean, you've gone from studying law, working in a New York law firm, being inside the White House, and now here you are out there, I assume, going around convincing people to invest into trust Carlisle to do a good job. Wasn't that an enormous leap?
5: It was. In hindsight, I look back and say, what were you thinking? You're crazy. You couldn't have done that. But when we started the firm, it was only going to be five or six people. And then I came up with the idea of basically building a multi firm, a buyout firm, venture firm, growth capital, real estate, and then globalizing it. And I spent much of 30 years running around the world, raising money and trying to recruit people to do it. So in hindsight, we made a lot of mistakes we should be bigger than anybody in the world. We had some ideas before. Blackstone even had its ideas about some of the things, but we didn't execute as well as I would have liked. On the other hand, we have built one of the larger private equity firms, and it's produced a lot of wealth for investors and for me, and I'm in the process of trying to give away most of that now.
3: Yeah. Can you explain the giving pledge just for a minute? In a way, it's a pretty remarkable thing to be an individual who is wealthy enough to belong to the giving pledge. But what was your thinking on it? And I mean, you signed it about the time Bill and Melinda Gates founded it.
5: Yes, what it was, was Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett came up with the idea that people that have a billion dollars of net worth or more should give away during their lifetime or upon their death, 50 percent of their net worth. And their idea was that people weren't doing a lot in philanthropy. And somebody who's a native of your state, Ted Turner, really deserves a lot of credit for this, because Ted Turner said... People aren't giving away enough money. He pledged a billion dollars to the UN at the time when he was wealthier than he turned out later to be, but he honored his commitment, and he kind of chastised a lot of wealthy people like Bill Gates and others for not doing much more in philanthropy. Anyway, the idea came from many people, including Ted Turner, that people should give away more money, and the idea was that we'd get people in the United States to do it, and then ultimately around the world. Now, there are about 230 people that have signed. Most of them are in the United States, and most of them have done a lot of good things in philanthropy. What I like to remind people is that philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean rich people writing checks. So you can love humanity without being a billionaire. Do something in your own community. Give your time, your energy, your ideas. Your time is the most valuable thing. If you're a billionaire and you have a lot of money, give away away your time and energy as well. If you give away money, fine. But do something useful with your money. Don't just let it pile up so you can say how rich you are.
3: Well, in a sense, I guess Andrew Carnegie was one of the early examples. I think he funded 2,300 libraries. That's correct. Just remarkable.
5: Andrew Carnegie wrote that those who die with a lot of money have made a big mistake. Now, he actually died with some money, but it was all given to philanthropic things. He has no heirs who have any money to speak of. Andrew Carnegie was one of the great philanthropists, and John D. E. Rockefeller was as well. But I think while philanthropy is a very important part of American society, In some years, we really weren't doing as much. And I think the Giving Pledge was a kickstart to kind of get people to do more, and not just billionaires, but everybody.
2: Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today.
3: Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, Took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling eight six 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 Took control of Congress, the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin is more than an investment; it's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling eight six six four eight four. That's 866 4043 Or order online at newtgingrichsilvercoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com.
1: Oh, that's such a clutch pickup, Dave. <laughs> I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide
2: and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
3: You know, one of the things I find as a once-upon-a-time history teacher I find fascinating about your career is you ended up being a collector of some really remarkable things. A very rare copy of the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, the first map of the United States, and the first book printed in the United States. And you've loaned most of those to the U.S. government as long-term loans. But how did you manage to assemble that quality of material?
5: Well, it was by happenstance. When the Magna Carta came for sale, it was being sold by Ross Perot through Sotheby's. I just said we should keep the only copy in the United States here in the United States because it was the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence, among other things. So I won the auction, and I put it on permanent loan to the National Archives, and I started buying rare copies of the Declaration of Independence and rare copies of the other documents you mentioned. But the most important thing is everything is on display because I want people to see these things. And the reason is this. If you see an original the Declaration of Independence, you're more likely to remember it and learn more about it. And as you know, as a former history professor, we don't really teach history very much anymore in the United States. And we have terrible scores on history and civics education. For example, if you want to be a naturalized American citizen now, you have to take a citizenship test. Ninety-one percent of the people pass it. It's basically a history test and a civics test, things like who's the first president of the United States. But the same test was given to people in... All 50 states who are native-born and only one state, Vermont, can a majority of citizens pass it. We don't teach history very much, and so I'm trying to educate people a little bit in my own modest way. And in your own backyard, the Congress, I started a program, which was the basis of my first book, where I have a famous historian come to Congress once a month, and I would interview them in front of a dinner that I would host for members of Congress at the Great Hall of the Library of Congress. And members liked it because they could talk with each other without anybody seeing it. They're talking to people from the opposite party. They could socialize, and you know they don't do that much anymore. So we were starting that program again in November with an interview with Susan Eisenhower on her book about President Eisenhower, her grandfather.
3: That's great. And I agree with you, by the way. I think one of the real losses in the current system is the casual time, the personal friendships. You know, Bob Michael, when he was the Republican leader, he was from Peoria, Illinois. Every Monday, he would drive over to the Indiana border and meet Danny Rostenkowski, And they alternated whose car they would take. They'd park one of them, take the other. They would drive to Washington, chatting all the way. And then on Friday, they would drive back together. Now, that's a level of intimacy that lets you solve a lot of problems because you're not the other, you're a human being.
5: Bipartisanship is largely gone by the wayside in Congress. And, you know, things are unanimously voted on one side or the other side. It's not what it used to be in the days of Rostenkowski or the days of even Tip O'Neill. So it's a sad situation. So I'd like to educate people about American history. I try to do that with members of Congress, though I don't want to say I'm educating them, but giving them an opportunity to learn a little bit more.
3: You may not want to jump ahead But I did notice in a recent interview that you said, I'm announcing something soon relating to doing more for educating people about our country's history.
5: Yes, I hope to announce something soon. I made an announcement yesterday. I just gave $10 million to Lincoln Center to help with democracy-related things that they do there. And I hope to make another announcement soon that I'm going to be involved in a civic education project with a lot of civic education organizations that are going to design to kind of educate people about more civics and things like that.
3: That's great. Yeah, I got a note from someone the other day pointing out that Washington's birthday will come up in about 11 years. In 1932, it was an enormous event and people really paid attention. They published the Washington papers around it, which are multi-volumes. In fact, Don Graham, who you interviewed, sent me the note and said, how should we celebrate Washington on his birthday? And I thought it was a very interesting question.
5: Well, interestingly, we don't celebrate Washington's birthday anymore. We celebrate President's Day because it was thought inappropriate to have two days, one for Lincoln and one for Washington. But interestingly, you point out, when Washington died in 1799, we didn't actually start building the Washington Monument until around 1832, 1832. And then it took about 50 years to get it done. It didn't really open to 1888. A typical Washington project takes 50 years to get done. Washington now has been criticized, obviously, for being a slave owner. And my own point in these kind of things is we have to take the good with the bad and understand what happened with these people. But we can't denigrate Washington and say all the good things he did is to go away and we shouldn't honor him because he was a slave owner. Many people were slave owners in those days, unfortunately.
3: That's true. The question becomes, in part, do you erase history or do you try to learn from it? And I think that that's an argument we need to have more of today.
5: Right. For example, I am working on a PBS series on history, and I'm going to go down this weekend to film something at Stone Mountain. So what do you do about Stone Mountain, where Confederate characters are carved in the historic piece of granite? And I don't really know what the best answer is. I think you shouldn't destroy something like that. You should educate people about why people did what they did at Stone Mountain, but not completely destroy it, in my view.
3: I recently did a podcast with Alan Gelzo, who has a brand new book out on Robert E. Lee. And I found it fascinating because Gelzo starts by saying, you know, you have to come to grips with the fact that Lee is a traitor. He swore an oath to the United States. He broke his word. And so you're trying to think through, how do I write a book about a man who committed treason? That was such an interesting angle of thinking about Lee compared to most of the hagiographies that were written over the last hundred years. That was fascinating.
5: It's an interesting phenomenon. I put up the money to redo the Custis Lee Mansion at the top of Arlington Cemetery. It's now opened again. And I suggested that we change the name to the Arlington House rather than the Custis Lee Mansion, the official monument of the country to Robert E. Lee. And that Congress hasn't made the change yet. I and mean, I think President Trump was upset with me for proposing that. But I do think that we shouldn't get rid of the Custis Lee Mansion. We should just remind people that the good and the bad, that had the slave quarters were built out and so forth. But I don't think we should destroy any knowledge of what happened before. We should just make sure people know the good and the bad. Like in Monticello, when I put up the money to redo Monticello, I said, let's build out the slave quarters so we can know what Thomas Jefferson was. He was a brilliant man in some ways, but he was a slave owner.
3: Well, in fact, when I visited, Cliss and I went down a couple of years ago. And it is, I think, very compelling to have to deal with the total context of somebody like Jefferson or Washington. At the same time, I think that it's very important for people to recognize that every generation has flaws. And the current generation eagerly running around judging the past will some morning wake up and be mature enough to realize that their own generation has its own set of things that three generations from now people won't understand.
5: Absolutely. I mean, look, even in my lifetime, I was born before Brown v. Board of Education. Even after Brown v. Board, there were schools there in my hometown of Baltimore that were are largely segregated and there was a lot of racial profiling. And I lived through a lot of that. And, you know, you have to recognize that civilization moves forward. You can't criticize everybody for every sin that existed at the time that they were born and the time that they lived. And then you should just have the good and the bad and and put these things in context.
3: I'm fascinated with your dedication to trying to understand America in a historic sense. And your most recent book, The American Experiment, first thing I want to commend you for is the range of people that you have in this book Again, I mean, you're a famous man and a very wealthy man, and you've been probably the number one charitable person in the Washington area. So I think everybody will open their door to you or pick up the phone. But you really reached out. How did you select such a remarkable range of people to have? Because these names are astonishing.
5: Well, I was looking for people that would be able to be both famous in a sense they've done famous things. And they're great americans or they write about it and take us through the span of american history but obviously i only have a limited number of space in the book i did about 20 more interviews for the book i couldn't fit them in so when people i interviewed didn't get in they call me and say david how come i'm not in the book i said well it's the publisher's fault i wanted you in look i do have good access but you have to treat people well in an interview if people think i'm going to you know do a uh, 60 minutes kind of traditional hit piece on them they probably won't do the interview i generally try to be polite and know what I'm talking about, and then try to bring out their knowledge as best I can.
3: Well, I'd have to say, if you have that many additional potential chapters, you may want to talk about the sequel, you know, volume two or something, because it's already available.
5: Well, you've written a lot of more books than me, and you know the publishing world. People like the books to sell, and so you go out and you promote them and do the best you can. If you do a good job, then they'll give you another opportunity.
3: I saw some quote from you the other day saying that depending on how this book does, there may be another book. I learned years ago, and I always say this to young writers, you have to be prepared to spend as much time selling your book as you're going to spend writing it.
5: I agree with you completely. People ask me all the time, do you mind signing my book? I said, wait a second, I spent a year or so writing this book. Why would I mind signing my autograph on your copy? Give me all the copies you want. I'll sign them all. I don't care. I take all the time in the day and to do it. I've signed a lot of books, and I'm happy to
3: do them. I think that's terrific. And some of the people you have here are good friends of mine. Francis Collins, who's been one of the most important leaders in biological research In the world for the last 30 or 40 years, done an amazing job. Walter Isaacson, who has a knack of picking topics and then immersing himself in them. He's now down at my alma mater, Tulane, which is also his alma mater. Just a great guy. McCullough, who historically we think of in more the revolutionary period, but his book on the Wright brothers, who I think are one of the great examples of the American tradition. The Smithsonian's given 50 grand. They try to invent flight. They're way too academic. The plane they build has an engine that's too big. The plane's too heavy. They launch it over the Potomac. It sinks. They can't figure out why it failed because it sank. They apparently hadn't thought through, you know, you launch it over water. If it ain't going to work, you got a problem. The Wright brothers average, I, I was out at Wright-Patterson talking to the experts about it. The Wright brothers averaged $1 per flight for five years.
5: The total for them to get in the air took about $1,000. That's all they spent. And even after they successfully flew the first plane, they couldn't convince Americans that they were doing it, so they had to go to France, which is what David McCullough points out, the irony that they have to go to France to show this American invention before people in America really believed it was true.
3: That's right. And then four years later, they fly around the island of Manhattan, and a million people see an airplane for the first time. In my mind, it's one of the great examples of why America is such an unusual country.
5: Remember, these two brothers were very smart but they didn't go to college. But according to David McCullough, they were able to do this because they read a lot of books. They had trained themselves in the social sciences. Their father had a lot of books, and they read them all the time, even though they couldn't afford to go to college. And so he was saying that the inquiring mind comes about when you study things like history and social sciences.
3: I think that's right. And I also think that if you can convince young people, whatever circumstance you end up in, you can read, you can learn, you can find mentors. There's no reason for anyone to give up if you're an American.
5: I agree. And sadly, though, as much as reading is important to me and to you, 14% of adults in this country are functionally illiterate. It means they can't read past the fourth grade level. And to me, the greatest reason we have income inequality is probably you have so many people that can't read. If you can't read, you are going to probably be in the federal criminal system. If you can't read, you're going to be in the juvenile delinquency system. It's a sad situation. And I think income redistribution is one thing. It's not going to solve the problems. You have to solve the problem of people can't read before you can solve other problems.
4: Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only. And that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O.
3: I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Well, you know, one of the things I'm trying to work on and just intellectually try to think through, the Baltimore City Schools have, I think, five school buildings in which not a single student was able to pass the state exam. And that's a crisis for them personally, those young people who are not going to be able to have a decent life, for the country, which is not going to be able to compete with China if we continue to produce people who can't do complicated, difficult work. But trying to think through how you tackle those kind of neighborhoods and those kind of situations, I think it's really, really a challenge.
5: Look, if I had the answer, I would be in Iowa and New Hampshire. Not easy to find the answers to those things. You know, what I try to do in my own philanthropy is find something which I can start that wouldn't otherwise get started. I can finish something that wouldn't otherwise get finished. I will have an intellectual interest to stay involved, and I'm going to see some progress in my lifetime. I can't solve all the global problems. I just have a narrow list of things I'm working on. K-12 education is such a problem that Bill Gates and so many others who've tried have failed to really make a big debt. It is amazing. We have the greatest higher education system in the world, bar none, but we have a K-12 system that's an embarrassment to the country.
3: When people ask me, what do I worry about most? It's education. Because if we don't fix that, we are not going to be able to compete in the world, and we're not going to be able to sustain a free society.
5: Yes. What percentage of people do you think in China are illiterate? A very small percentage compared to this country. Very small percentage.
3: And if you look at India, the intensity of the effort to get their children to learn and the quality, for example, of the Indian technology schools is just remarkable in a country which is very, very poor. But it sees learning as the path to the future.
5: I agree. To me, that's everything. Education is everything.
3: I have to ask you just for a minute about our mutual friend, I first got to know Don Graham when I was a junior congressman, and he was down working at the Post. And as I learned that he had gone to Vietnam to serve, then he came back home, decided he needed to learn the city, so he became a cop on the street. I think he's one of the most interesting and complex people I've ever met.
5: Don was trying to be different than his father, who wanted to be a global figure, I think, and be a presidential maker. Don wanted to make the newspaper a local vapor, and he wanted to understand the local community, and that's why he became a policeman for a while. Don offered me an opportunity to buy the Washington Post before he sold it to Jeff Bezos, who's a much better owner, much richer and better than I would have been. One of my regrets in life is I wish I had said yes.
3: Well, it's a remarkable tradition there. And Don himself, we try to work on things like helping the dreamers and breaking out of the current immigration law problems. But I find him... An example on this list of people that are really interesting that you managed to sit down with and talk with. Now, when I first saw this, I have to confess, I was stopped a little bit by the notion of the key genes. I mean, I sort of understand which parallel you're drawing, but as you thought about it, how did you come to this particular list of 13?
5: Okay, so when you came up with a contract for America, right? How many key provisions were there? 10. 10, right. Okay. If you had had 25, people wouldn't remember it, right? Well, so you come up with a reasonable number that people can more or less remember. And my idea was, what are the number of things I can probably get people to remember in terms of the key things that make Americans so unique? And I couldn't come up with 10. I came up with 13. But- Basically, the concept, it was obviously, it's a bit of a rhetorical device to basically say, look, we have these genes in us. We don't only have the genes, but it's kind of what makes America unique in my view. So if you go to France, they won't believe in, let's say, the American dream as much as we believe in American dream. They don't have a French dream. Our unique things are kind of things I put in there, the belief in rule of law, the belief in equality, diversity, and so forth. So that's how I came up with it. And I'm sure anybody could come up with a different 13, but that's the one I came up with.
3: No, no, I think it's a good list. And I think it makes a lot of sense in trying to describe this unique experiment, which somehow I was telling a group earlier today, we have many weaknesses, we have many problems, we have some very deep conflicts, but you have over a million people trying to get into the country illegally while we also accept over a million people legally. I don't notice anybody queuing up to get into China are trying to get to Russia.
5: We have 46 million immigrants in this country, 46 million. I don't know that there are 46 million people in the whole rest of the world that are living in countries that they weren't born in. But people want to come here. And how many people leave every year that give up their citizenship? Virtually nobody gives up their citizenship in this country.
3: And that's been true almost from the very beginning of the country. In the beginning of the
5: country, as I pointed out in one of the chapters, anybody could show up. There were no visas, no passports. Anybody could show up. And then, you know, when people who weren't from Western Europe started to show up, then they began to, you know, make it more difficult and so forth. But now it's not that difficult to get in legally if you have some basic qualifications, you have a family connection here. It's not as bad as it was from 1925, 1965, when it was much more difficult to get in.
3: Well, and the other challenge, which I think legitimately absorbs a large part of our public life right now, I was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. My dad served in the army by... Grew up in places like Fort Riley, Kansas, and Orléans, France, and Stuttgart. I got to Georgia through Fort Benning when my dad was assigned there as a junior in high school. That was in early 1960. Georgia was an intensely segregationist state. And it was a legal system in which the power of the government coerced people, and they had no real choices if they were African American. And I do think we've had a difficult time— trying to take precisely the list you have in terms of the genes of the American system and finding a way to fully, deeply involve every African-American, recognizing that they do have a unique and different, I mean, only Native Americans have had a harder time than African-Americans in dealing with this. And I think that's One of the great challenges, and I know you spend time on Frederick Douglass and John Lewis, and you're sensitive to it in the book, but it does strike me that it's one of the complexities of our country.
5: Well, what I say is one of our genes today is diversity. Now, when our country was being founded, nobody was talking about diversity. They might have been talking about separation of powers, but not diversity. It's a gene that has evolved. And now, if you go to Japan, you go to China, and you say diversity is very important, they look at you like, what are you talking about? In this country now, we accept the concept largely that diversity has some benefits to it, and it's appropriate to do. But it's a new concept. You know, even when you and I were growing up as young boys, diversity wasn't seen as a great virtue.
3: No, that's exactly right. The degree to which America has changed, I try to explain it occasionally to my grandchildren. In our lifetime, and I'm a little bit older than you, but we both have seen so many things
5: in 1960, the country was 90% white, 10% non-white, mostly black. Now it's obviously 40% non-white. In Georgia, in 1960, Georgia gave, I think, the highest percentage victory to John Kennedy. It's hard to believe that that happened. But it did. And it's just a different world. And because, you know, the world was largely segregated in the South then, and the Democrats were seen as supportive of that.
3: That's right. Actually, my entry to practical politics was in 1960 in Columbus, Georgia, When as a 16-year-old high school student, there were so few Republicans, they were so thrilled to have anybody volunteer, that I was allowed to work in the Nixon Lodge campaign. And, you know, the Georgia Republican Party, for all practical purposes, didn't exist. I mean, it was astonishing. I do want to mention, by the way, your use of genetics. I was very intrigued a few years back. I read Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. He's a great student of genetics. And the last part of his book, and he invents the concept of what he calls a mean, M-E-N-E, and argues that cultures actually evolve very parallel to the way biology evolves. And that, for example, Mozart was a really successful mean in that his music crowded out most of his competitors and survived. I found it a very interesting way to think about how these ideas get engaged. Well,
5: yes, think about this. In the end, Darwin said that there's a kind of survival of the fittest and we progress and humans and other species progress. They grow, they improve. The same is true with our government. The government has progressed in many ways, in some cases not as much as you might want, but the government evolves just the way Darwin thought that creatures evolved.
3: Listen, I don't want to get you too deeply involved in partisan politics, but I have to ask you just for a second, since somebody you've known for many years who was a co-CEO of your company is now running for governor at Glenn Youngkin. What was your experience with him like? I mean, obviously it was very profitable.
5: You know, it's a complicated subject for me to talk about only because Terry McAuliffe has been a friend of mine for, you know, 25 years I've known him and I hired Glenn 25 years ago. And so I've known them both. And because the state of Virginia has invested with Carlisle, we have found the best thing to do is to say nothing and not get in trouble. So what is your next question?
3: (laughs) That's very good. I think you've framed it exactly right. I want to thank you for joining me today. You know, I was told you're a great interviewer and you're a great interview. I know personally, because of things we've done at the Kennedy Center and elsewhere, that your philanthropy is really making a difference.
5: Well, Newt, thank you very much for the time.
3: We are going to have a link to buy your book, The American Experiment, Dialogues and a Dream. It'll be on our show page at newtsworld.com. And as a fellow author, I want to do all I can to help make sure you're successful so you can go on to the next book. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank you to my guest, David Rubenstein. You can get a link to buy his new book, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream, on our show page at Newsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.